0: Welcome back to Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited to have on Brooke Laser On today's episode, Brooke is a registered dietitian, CEDRD. She specializes in helping people with eating disorders and disordered eating heal their relationship with food in their bodies. She's a private practice and also works at a mental health treatment center in Los Angeles. She has recovered from her own eating disorder and is passionate about helping others recover. Brooke believes that full recovery of an eating disorder is absolutely possible and wants to help people get there. So welcome, Brooke. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So we told the audience that you yourself had an eating disorder. I would love for you to share your story, how you went from being someone who actually has an eating disorder to healing and recovering, and now you're helping those with eating disorders.
2: Sure. So when I was in middle school, my family, we moved to a new house and I also switched to a new school and I was really nervous about switching to a new school with all new kids and decided to go on a diet and um, to kind of lose weight and feel like I could feel more comfortable and confident starting at this new school. And I took this diet absolutely too far and um, was very perfectionistic at the time and very type A at the time and goal oriented. And not that I'm not those things anymore, but I took those things to an extreme and developed full-blown anorexia. And I worked with a woman at the time who helped me eat enough food And um, get to a place where I restored my weight. And at that point, I thought that I was better from my eating disorder. So throughout high school, I ate, quote unquote, enough. And I maintained an okay weight where I was able to get a period and be healthy enough. Um, But I never truly healed my relationship with food. And so throughout the rest of high school and then college, um, I continued to eat really rigidly and was very regimented. I thought about food as good and bad. I would be really, quote, good during the day. And then when I went out at night or when I had a couple drinks with friends, um, I would totally lose my inhibitions and then overeat or binge or eat quote unquote bad foods that I wouldn't let myself eat throughout the day. And, you know, freshman year of college, I was so afraid of gaining that, you know, gaining weight that I was the girl that brought my own canister of oatmeal down to the cafeteria because I didn't believe that they were making theirs with water, not milk. And I was the girl that didn't, you know, when all the girls on my floor ordered pizza one night to stay in and hang out and get to know each other, that I was the girl that didn't eat pizza with all those new people on the floor. And it's sad because I remember being praised for having such good self-control and being someone that was so disciplined. And looking back, it was really sad because I wasn't even able to connect to all of these new people through food, with it I believe now is so important. And so it's interesting because throughout high school and college, again, like I thought I was better for my eating disorder. I actually went into nutrition. I guess I kind of went into nutrition because I wanted to learn ways to be even quote unquote better with food. So then I dated this guy in in college who was like the most free, fun eater and in dating him. And him saying, hey, let's eat chips on the couch or us seeing a commercial for some new tacos at Taco Bell and wanting to go get them. I went and did these things because I wanted to, again, participate in this relationship through food. And it helped me let go a little bit, but still continue to hold on to food rules and judgments about foods being good and bad. So when I finished college again, I still thought I was fine. I did my, um, my uh, dietetic internship and then I ended up in L.A., and when I got here to LA, the first person that I met was Elise Rush, and she was a who wrote the book Intuitive Eating. Um, I was put in touch with her through a friend and I went and I met Elise and I said, I'm recovered from my eating disorder. I don't know what I want to do. And she said, why don't you apply to this eating disorder treatment center, Montanito, which is a really well-known and awesome eating disorder treatment center um, and see how it goes. So I got to Montanito and again, I said, I'm recovered from my eating disorder. I want to help people with eating disorders. And they said, you can um, volunteer here and we'll see how it goes. So I started volunteering and I soon realized that I was not in fact recovered from my eating disorder. And I was still really struggling with disordered eating and really normalizing, you know, moralizing food as good and bad, really normalizing the guilt and shame that I was feeling for eating foods. And when I started working at the clinic and I saw the way that we encouraged the clients there to eat, you know, that we would have a sandwich for lunch with a handful of chips on the side, that we would go out for meals together and you weren't allowed to make modifications, that we would have dessert after lunch sometimes. And it was really fun and normal that through doing those things. It's interesting because working at the treatment center was that final piece Mm -hmm. that really showed me what true recovery from an eating disorder looks like and that full recovery is possible. And so that was in 2009. So it's been 12 years and I now have total freedom with food. I'm so proud of being a normal, healthy eater. Um, and again, I, it was just like that final piece for me that really showed me this different way of looking at food and living that I never knew existed when I was younger.
0: So amazing. It really is such an inspiring story and there are so many aspects to it, you know, especially this idea. And I feel like Laura and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast, but as a quote unquote healthy eater or someone with orthorexia or an eating disorder, you're praised for having self-discipline when in fact like those behaviors are actually extremely disordered. So I, yeah, Lauren, I feel like we talk about that all the time and it's, you know, it's come up a lot on this podcast and you know, the fact that in your mind you were recovered because you were eating quote enough, like quote unquote enough, Mm -hmm. but it just shows us that your relationship to food is a huge aspect. It's not just eating enough, but it's how you relate to food, how you think about food that is also really important for recovery.
2: Exactly. And I think that's a great point because it was so easy for me to say, oh, I'm recovered because I eat enough, I weigh enough and, you know, I'm getting enough in, but it was still taking up a lot of space in my life and affecting my relationships um, because I wasn't able to really enjoy food and life, you
1: know, with friends. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like that is so common with eating disorders for people that go through treatment. They, they just get to an okay place. And then there's more work that needs to be done with actual relationship with food. Right. Cause I feel like the priority with a lot of eating disorders is just like, okay, let's get you weight restored. Let's make sure, you know, you're at an okay place, but the relationship with food is, is not usually, you know, we usually don't get to that step, especially were you in a treatment center?
2: Yeah. So I worked at, um, at Montanito and I worked there as the registered dietitian for nine years and I worked in, um, day treatment. So clients would come during the day and then go home at night. And you're right, Lauren, that there's only so much that we, so much that we get to while people are in treatment. And then it's when they leave treatment and continue with their Um, hopefully with their outpatient team and then continue the work ongoing that really allows you to get to that place to be truly fully recovered statistically it takes five to seven years to fully recover from an eating disorder and so you're not going to quite get there in treatment yeah so were you yourself in a treatment center No, I wasn't. So I was, yeah, when I was, um, younger, there was a woman that helped me again, get to that place where I ate enough and weighed enough. Um, but I never even knew that this world existed, that you get to be a, a normal eater.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: So I'm curious to know, you know, what are some signs that someone who's listening is either struggling themselves with disordered eating or someone they know, with either disordered eating or eating disorder, what are some signs that, you know, we should be looking out for? That's a great question.
2: Um, so it's really hard to know if someone has an eating disorder from eating one meal with them or spending one day with them because you're only getting a snapshot into a moment of their life. And so it's hard to have, you know, one meal and go, oh, that person didn't eat enough. They must be struggling with food. Um, some general bigger picture things that you can look out for um, is that, like if they're not eating much when you're with them, that might be something to keep an eye on. Um, when people engage in a lot of body bashing or diet talk, so when people say mean things about their body or always are talking about what diet they're on, if people are always talking about food or stressing about food, um If you have a friend that's chronically dieting, it could mean that that person is struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating. If someone, you know, complains of low energy or looks malnourished, um, a lot of times food and mood are closely associated. So if someone that is um, typically more of a happy person is now feeling more irritable and low, Um, those might be, you know, indicators that someone's having a hard time with food or struggling with an eating disorder.
1: And you keep making the distinction between eating disorder and disordered eating. So can you kind of explain that for everybody listening?
2: Sure. So the main difference between um, having a full-blown eating disorder and struggling with disordered eating is that eating disorders are in the DSM and disordered eating is not. So the DSM is a manual that lists criteria and symptoms that must be present for someone to be diagnosed with a specific mental disorder. So it's basically a guidebook that mental health professionals use to diagnose mental disorders. So for example, in order to be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder, the DSM will tell you exactly what needs to be present For you to be diagnosed with having that eating disorder. So, disordered eating is not in that booklet, but there is an eating disorder that is there called OSFED, which is other specified feeding and eating disorders. And this is for people that don't perfectly fit um, into the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. They might be diagnosed with OSFED, and I would put disordered eating under that category. Right.
0: I always say too, it depends on the person's quality of life. Mm -hmm. Someone can be like a quote unquote normal weight and yet their entire day is filled with food thoughts and body image thoughts. So we really want to think about, you know, what impact is your relationship with food having on your overall quality of life? Because even if you don't necessarily meet the diagnostics for an eating disorder, that doesn't mean that your life isn't really impacted. Exactly. I completely agree. And I think that,
2: you know, chronic dieting, compulsive overeating, those things can be just as debilitating as far as how much space those things take up in your mind and in your life and how they impact your relationship. Um, and so I think it's really dangerous sometimes to, or it is dangerous to minimize, um, the idea that disordered eating is less severe than a full-blown eating disorder because oftentimes disordered eating does take up just as much mental capacity. And a lot of times when people are struggling with disordered eating, they feel like they're not sick enough to warrant help or deserve help to get better.
1: Yes. Brings us to a great next point of what is sick enough and what do you do if, you know, Somebody tells you, like, I've had friends that, I mean, I personally didn't think I was sick enough, kind of what you were saying about being praised for the behaviors I was having, but I've had friends who have, you know, been aware and gone to their doctors and whatnot, and they're like, oh, you know, you're not at a certain weight or not being sick enough. So how how do you go about that? Yep.
2: So this is super common. I hear it all the time is, you know, people's belief that they aren't sick enough to have an eating disorder or to need eating disorder help or treatment or support around food. Um, And so eating disorders are often competitive illnesses. So for instance, like your eating disorder, you know, it's common that it'll cause you to compare yourself to other people. And that then the eating disorder will say, or the disordered eating voice will say that you aren't sick enough, that someone else out there is sicker. Um, And this is, it, it, it makes sense because admitting that you're struggling with food and taking the steps to get better is hard and it's scary. So if you convince yourself that you're fine, um, then you don't have to do
0: that scary work or take that scary step toward recovery, What is so interesting is I feel like the eating disorders also have like their own reputations. So a lot of my clients who have binge eating disorder are almost, they're embarrassed. They're ashamed by their binge eating. And they'll say like, well, people with anorexia, like they're at least, you know, able to restrict and they're able to, you know, have this type of like willpower or discipline. And they're, I feel like the personas of different eating disorders are so different depending on what they are too, which is really interesting
2: yeah a, a lot of people glorify anorexia like that's the eating disorder that you know people want to have if they struggle with binge eating disorder or bulimia um which makes me so sad because you know like we've said that each eating disorder and disordered eating is something that just takes up a lot of space in your mind and in your life and it's also the
1: deadliest yep. anorexia yeah. and the uh, sizes of people who struggle with Those disorders is also kind of over generalized. So it's Mm -hmm. associated. Oh, well, if you have anorexia, you're you know emaciated. Oh, if you're you have binge eating disorder, you're probably overweight. So I think that also plays into the sick enough piece of you know you're not this weight, so you're okay. That kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. And I think,
2: you know, for me, the bottom line is like, even if you're considered to be normal weight or overweight, um, even if you think that you're too big to have an eating disorder, even, you know, if your labs are no, quote unquote normal, um, if you're struggling with a preoccupation with food and weight, you're sick enough and you absolutely deserve to get treatment and help in order to make peace with food.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, what you were saying, Lauren too, it's so true, different size bodies that a lot of people in larger bodies end up not getting treated if they have anorexia. And, you know, they're often told by doctors, like you're clearly eating, or, you know, obviously you're eating enough food and, all that stigma is causing so much harm not only for people to actually seek out and get help but then also the kind of help that they're able to receive for those who are in bigger bodies yep
2: yeah. i have so many clients that have um had medical professionals say things like well You don't look like you have an eating disorder or your weight's fine. You don't have an eating disorder. And it's so hard because those comments collude with the eating disorder thought that people aren't in fact sick enough. And then, you know, they don't feel like they deserve help or that they are at a place where they need treatment.
1: Yeah. Right. I wish like we need just a universal PSA that anytime food or body image comes up in a doctor's office. Just refer to a freaking dietitian. I don't know why it's so difficult for some people. It is so freaking frustrating. Same to me.
0: <laughs> I feel like I spend a quarter of my sessions with clients talking about the harm that yeah. other healthcare providers have caused. Yeah. You know? And so in terms of like advocacy, actually, Brooke, like how would, what would you recommend to someone who is in a larger body, who feels like they aren't getting, you know, adequate support or care? Like what is something that they can do? Because even within the eating disorder world, like there certainly is weight stigma and there certainly is, you know, fat phobia. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, and I think like we've been saying that eating disorders come in every shape and size Um, And they impact people of all weight, body type, age, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status. And so it's really, again, you can't look at someone and know anything about the way that they approach food just by looking at them. And so in terms of advocacy, it's hard because, again, people feel invalidated by medical professionals and I think that, you know, to kind of speak up and share, I know that I think that you had a post, Brittany, this week that said that you wish that people... would ask about behaviors and ask about what's going on relationally with food because we can't just look at anyone and know what's going on. Um, and so I always tell my clients to tell their doctors like, Hey, I'm working with a dietitian, and we talk about my relationship with food. So I don't need any tips or guy or guy, you know, any, um, input from the doctor about food. Cause like I had a client that came to me last week and she said her doctor told her to eat healthy.
0: And so those helpful.
2: Two, exactly. Those, and I go, well, what do they mean by that? And she goes, you know, eat healthy. And it, and then she went on and on about this traditional definition of quote, unquote, eating healthy. That means don't eat certain foods that, um, she believes aren't healthy. And I couldn't believe, you know, I said, you let two words eat healthy affect your entire
0: week until we saw each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And also like eating healthy is so different for everyone. Like how I, what I consider to be healthy is probably different than how both of you consider it. And you know, it's it's such a broad recommendation.
2: Yep. And so it was just, it was amazing to me that those two little words really stuck with her. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a client that, um, When she was 12, she went to the dermatologist and the dermatologist said, oh, it must be sugar and dairy that's causing you to have acne. And she held on to that that piece of information. And that piece of information was what caused her to develop an entire eating disorder. She went home, she started systematically cutting out Um, sugar until she was eating none, cutting out all dairy, even though she doesn't have any negative side effects from eating dairy. And it, you know, just got to a place where she developed a full-blown eating disorder and fear of
0: these foods because of one comment that someone made. I feel like that happens often too in schools. Like if, you know, one of my clients said that there was a um, sign and it showed the sugar cubes. And I definitely have used that before I got into this space when I was, you know, still pretty disordered myself. But that, you know, piece of information about sugar-sweetened beverages, even a decade later, is still stuck in her brain. And it's hard to drink sugar-sweetened beverages because of the posters that she saw in her middle school. Mm -hmm.
1: There's so many messages out there that people can you know, cling on to that's just not help. I mean, I came across a freaking TikTok yesterday, Brittany, that we were talking about on another episode about how I teeter between like the healthy TikTok of like, Oh, anti-diet. And then I also consume the other stuff. Cause I'm always curious what toxic things people are putting out there. So this video came up and I literally, I literally commented, I'm not usually one to like Comment, but she was she was like a holistic quote unquote nutritionist. And she's like, um, three foods I wouldn't eat as a holistic nutritionist. And I'm like, oh great. She's gonna be one of those people that's like foods I'm allergic to, foods, you know, they're spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. And then she actually starts saying certain foods, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And like the reasoning behind a lot of those foods, she was like, Oh, well, this is a cancerous, you know, something that's cancerous. I'm like, Do you like, do you not understand research? Like there literally is research that the dosage is what really makes the poison. Like it wouldn't be in our food if it was actually causing cancer. And there was a girl in the comments that was like freaking out. And she was like, what do I do? And I was like, it's literally fine. And she was like, oh my God, thanks so much. I was like, oh God, I can't. And I'm sure that person had like 500,000 followers too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I can't. (laughs) It's, it's just insane. It should be
0: illegal to put out like really harmful and Mm. false information. I mean, it's, it truly is misinformation. And it's, and it's amazing how many young people I work with that are getting their misinformation
2: about food from TikTok and from social media. And so it's always important when people get to meet someone like us and actually get evidence based nutrition education to know that all foods are allowed and you don't have to be fearful of being dangerous. Yeah.
0: So I wanted to, um, you know, kind of switch topics for a moment, not fully topics, but so we were talking about, you know, some signs that you can notice when someone has an eating disorder or disordered eating, but how do we actually approach that person? Oftentimes there might be a sense of denial, like, no, I'm fine. I'm healthy. There might be some anger or resentment. So how would you Recommend approaching someone that you love or care about who you suspect may have an eating disorder or disordered eating?
2: Yeah. This one's really tough because everybody is so different, and each person is going to want a different type of support and love and display of concern. Um, a couple things that I think are helpful generally is that when you're approaching someone that you love um, about a concern that you think they might be struggling with food, um, it's helpful to give observable data. So to say, hey, this is what I've noticed and this is why I'm concerned. Um, It's super important to approach people with kindness and compassion. Um, Sometimes it's helpful to come with resources. So I have some resources that I can give you, Brittany, and Lauren, to put in, um, in the show notes. Yes, in the show notes. Um, but like if someone's in school, they can go to the health center or go see a guidance counselor. Or you could say, hey, let's go online and look together and see what options you can find. Um, you know, it's hard because you can't force anyone to get help. And so you might be faced with defensiveness or denial that there's a problem. And this is really common because a lot of times people are protective of their eating disorder and protective of the relationship they they have with the eating disorder. Um, And so know that, you know, by bringing up your concern, it might feel bad in the moment, but ultimately you're doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, I love that. A good point. It's so important, I think, to acknowledge that you might come against that denial or disagreement. Uh, and if that does happen, just knowing that you are doing the right thing. And hopefully they will come to terms with it and, you know, down the line, be like, you're right. And thanks for acknowledging it.
0: Yeah. It's also hard too because oftentimes someone's eating disorder or disordered eating can be a coping tool. And so if you're taking away someone's main coping tool, like that is a major challenge for someone. And so definitely and scary. Yeah, it's definitely scary. Encouraging them to seek out therapy, obviously make sure that they're getting support from a dietitian and, and a medical provider. Um, it's it's really hard. So the yeah. compassion piece is huge. Yep.
2: Yes. And I think that um one other piece is being a good role model for normal eating. You know, if you're call, if you're approaching a friend and saying that you're concerned, but you're entrenched in diet culture yourself and trying to lose weight and always talking about good or bad foods or how "quote unquote" bad you were today because you ate X, Y, or Z, um, that you're more so colluding with the person who's struggling than you are being a good role model. Um, so it's really important to refrain from making negative comments about your body, um, or about food or other diet culture driven comments, um, you know, to just be a good example for healthy, normal eating.
0: I love that. And even just planting small seeds. So even if you aren't necessarily approaching a friend, you yourself having a healthy, normal relationship with food can have such a profound impact on that person. And Brooke, like what you were saying, I actually had a similar experience too with a partner, um, you know, when you're surrounded by people who have really healthy, you know, not disordered behaviors, it can be so liberating and so freeing for that person. So being that role model, being that support system, and, you know, again, like not being fully entrenched in diet culture yourself, as you mm-hmm. said.
1: Yeah. I experienced very similar things. I mean, my eating disorder, I mean, I just had the perfect storm of like, I'm a perfectionist type a, you know, a lot of personality traits that go along with uh, disordered eating and an eating disorder and put me in that college environment. And it just spiraled me. Um, so, you know, where every single one of my friends would look in the mirror and pinch their bodies and say, Oh, this isn't going to look good. I have to look good for Tim tonight, you know, whatever it was. Um, and I Brooke, was similar to you where I think I like got to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm like good enough. It's not, you know, as debilitating as it used to be, but there was still that component of food and there was still that like, component of dieting and and control that I was hanging on to. And it wasn't until I went into my dietetic internship and I'll never forget the first day that I went and they told us we had free lunch. And I was like, Oh, that's gross. I'm not eating like lunch, like hospital food, by the way, ended up being very good. Um, but I brought my own lunch and I think there was like 16 of us interns and I was the only one that brought my lunch. And I was like, wait, like this is a room of dietetic interns. Isn't everybody supposed to be like health conscious? And everyone in my internship was just like a normal eater and didn't obsess. And they're like, it's free lunch. What do you mean you packed your lunch? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And that environment helped me so much to realize, oh, okay. I don't have to obsess over my food. I'm allowed to, you know, Eat whatever is available and yes. it took so much stress off me too. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't have to pack my lunch every day.
0: Yeah. It happened to me too in graduate school and at, in the dietetic internship, Laura and I actually were in the same dietetic internship, not the same class, but at the same program. And I feel like the most people in my program, like their relationship with food was really normal and they would have cake after lunch if that's what they wanted. And yeah. some days they'll have a salad, other days would be a sandwich. And so it's, it's really freeing.
2: Yeah, I had the same experience in my dietetic internship that I brought my lunch every day and the other dieticians, you know, would get the hospital, you know, food and they would have pizza and they would have hot lunch and they would have yummy stuff. And every day I brought, a salad from home. And it was still quote unquote appropriate. I had all my food groups and I had my fats and I had my grains and, you know, I it met my needs, but it was super rigid. And it wasn't something that, you know, looking back, I wish I would have participated in eating all the fun stuff that they were eating. Like you did Lauren. Cause I, and, you know, I just wasn't there yet
0: but now you are. And yes. you know that kind of brings me to the last question that I have is some people believe that recovery is impossible. So I would love to hear from you as someone who is fully recovered and healed from an eating disorder, you know, what you would say to that.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, so... There's different schools of thought in the world of eating disorder recovery. Some people believe that you will always be in recovery from your eating disorder, and it's something that you'll continue to struggle with. I believe that you can be fully recovered, period, from your eating disorder, and it's something that you're not going to continue to struggle with throughout your life, but um, So being fully recovered from an eating disorder doesn't mean that you're never going to have a bad body image day, or you're never going to have a day that you don't feel as good in your body. Um, It's just what you do with those days, to me, that differentiates being um, in recovery versus being recovered. And so if there's a day that I don't feel good in my body, what do I do about it? Nothing you know, maybe I'll wear them comfier clothes. Um, maybe I'll spend time with people that I love more, but it's not that I'm going to eat less or exercise more because I'm not feeling good in my body that day. Um, and so I really believe that you can be fully recovered. I don't struggle with my eating disorder or disordered eating thoughts, Um, it's something that full recovery is possible and that it's so freeing that it's not tempting to go back to any sort of disordered eating or eating disorder, because like we've said, it just takes up so much space from living a full and healthy and fun life.
0: And what I will say is Brooke and I actually met up in Manhattan in New York city. And we went and got bacon, egg and cheese sandwiches from this awesome bakery that Brooke wanted to try. And it was just so fun to be able to do that and share food and share, you know, our personal stories and, you know, how we got into this work. So it's, it's, you know, recovery is possible and it's also worth it. It's so worth it. I'm so
2: proud and excited to be a normal eater and to help other people do the same. Yes.
0: Well, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Where can our listeners find you on social? So, I have a professional
2: Instagram that is, I'm working on building up. I admire yours so much because I love everything that you put up. Um, And otherwise, I can put my email in the show notes as well. And so you can email me find me on Instagram. And what's your Instagram name? We got to, um, it's at Brooke Glazer underscore
0: RDN. Great. And we will put that in the show notes and the links that you had mentioned earlier today. Thanks so much, Brooke. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear
1: next.